I do want to read our scripture for this morning, but before we do that, um, I wanted to bring some attention. You know, many of you remember Jonathan Neef, who is our pastoral resident, who was with us for uh, two years, and we sent him off to Chicago. Uh, sadly, but, but it was a joy to see him uh, lead in this church that he is serving in, in Chicago. But, but as a church, we have been a part of what's called the residency, the pastoral residency, uh, for several years. And really what we try to do with the residency is where we bring on graduates from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, who serve with us as pastors for two years, and, and we have been doing this as a way to equip next generational leaders. And so uh, across our campuses, we, we have uh, residents that serve in various roles. And this morning, uh, we have the joy and the privilege of having Henry Thompson, who's our uh, resident at our Brookside campus, uh, to come share God's word with us. Uh, Henry is, is a dearly beloved brother and colleague who's been influential in my life in the, the short time he's been with us at Christ Community, and so it's an honor to have him with us. And so I want to read our scripture this morning, uh, and then I would invite you to welcome uh, Henry as we open God's Word together. So I invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word, which will be found in Genesis, page 1. So there's no excuse for not knowing where the Bible uh, reading is this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and then God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This is the word of the Lord. You, you may be seated. Good morning. As Reed just stated, I am one of the current pastoral residents, pastoral residents at Christ Community Church. I was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I attended Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana for my undergraduate degree. And I graduated from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School this past May and moved from the Chicagoland area to Kansas City about nine months ago. I now currently live in the Westport area in KC Mo, and I'm thankful to be at Christ Community, and I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to preach the word to you this morning in Olathe. Now, Reed told me to say this to you. I'm used to people saying amen <laughs> during sermons. Can y'all do that? Amen? amen. Okay. <laughs> Just want to make sure y'all with me. <laughs> um, let us pray before uh, we begin. Father, uh, we thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for sending your son uh, to die for us, and thank you for gathering us here this morning, Lord. And I pray that you would be glorified and exalted. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and uh, open the hearts of your people, open my heart, Lord, and pray that we would hear from you this morning, Lord, and that you would be glorified in this message, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I thought that was a children's story. I thought that was a children's story. These were the words my friend used when I informed him that I believed the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2. I was attempting to explain my faith to my friend 
But he did not see how I could believe the creation story within the Bible. He didn't see how I could believe the Genesis account of a historical Adam and Eve. My friend viewed the Genesis story as a children's story or a fairy tale. He could not fathom a rational human being believing the creation narrative in Genesis. After he expressed his views on Genesis, I did not know how to continue the conversation. I did not know how to show him the plausibility of my point of view. Have you ever been there? Or have you ever questioned the creation narrative of the Bible yourself? In the book, How Not to Be Secular, the professor of philosophy, J.K.A. Smith, writes, even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an unescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. This quote highlights the reality that it is hard to believe in God in our secular age. This quote also shows that it's easy to doubt the existence of God in our current culture. Prior to the 1500s, everyone in Western society believed that creation pointed to a God or gods. But after enlightenment and advances in science, many people became, began to question God's existence. We now live in an era where people have separated the creation from the creator. We live in an era where people often separate our glorious world from an even more glorious God. Let me ask you a question. When you look at the sunset, do you think of God? Or when you look at the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, do you think of God? To be honest with you all, when I look at the glory of creation, I do not often think of our glorious God, but our world is meant to point us to God. And this is what we are going to see in Genesis 1 this morning. Now, if you've been tracking with us, you know that we began a new series in Genesis last week. So for the next six months, we will be preaching through Genesis. Now, Genesis is the first of a five-volume set referred to as the Pentateuch. Genesis was written by Moses, the person that God used to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Moses wrote these things down for the Israelites to prepare them to enter the Promised Land. As Nathan said in his sermon last week, this is important. Moses didn't write Genesis down to answer our questions, but to help the people of Israel know who God is and how he's different from the Canaanite and Egyptian gods. So as we walk through these words, we have to look first at what the Hebrew text is trying to communicate to them, not with our questions, opinions, cultural imperialism, or issues with science. We have to begin with the text. And through our text this morning, we're going to see that our glorious universe points to an even more glorious God. Genesis 1 shows us that our glorious world points to an even more glorious God. We're going to see three reasons that our glorious world points to an even more glorious God. First, our world points to the God of Genesis because it has order. Our universe seems to have been ordered by an all-powerful God. Now let's look back at our text, starting in Genesis 1.1. It reads, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let let the dry land appear. And it was so. Now, verse one of our text this morning is a summary statement of all God's creative activity in Genesis 1. In verse two of our text, we see that the earth was disordered and chaotic. The earth had no function or purpose. It was entirely empty. But in verse 2, we see that God's spirit was present over the waters. This shows us that something is about to happen. And we see it in verse 2. God says, let there be light. Now, this verse is a bit confusing because God did not create the sun and moon until the fourth day. So many people have wondered what God is talking about when he says, let there be light on day one. Well, in this verse, God is creating a time of light and a time of darkness. Prior to day one, there was complete darkness and chaos. But on on day one, God sets time in motion by creating a time of light and a time for darkness. This is why verse four shows that God separated light from the darkness. In verse five, we see the time of light is day and the time of dark is night. Thus, there was a daytime and a nighttime on day one because God created a time for day and night on the first day of creation. Now, in verse five of our text, we are introduced to the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day in our text. It is a word that many people have argued about. Some have wondered if yom is 24 hours or if yom points to a longer time period. The original audience, the Israelites, probably would have referred viewed Yom as an actual day or 24-hour period, but Moses did not write Genesis 1 to show us the age of the earth. As Nathan stated last week in his sermon, Genesis 1 does not require us to believe that the earth is 10,000 years old, and it does not require us to explain how the earth is 13 billion years old through Genesis either. These questions of modern science would have been completely foreign to the original audience. Moses is not interested in showing, in writing a modern science book in Genesis 1. He is interested in showing us a God who brings order out of chaos and disorder. And we see this in our text. In verse 6, we see God separating the waters from the waters. Now, this is kind of confusing, but Moses is referring to the creation of our atmosphere. Moses is pointing to the creation of weather and the sky. We have water in the ocean, but there is also water that comes from above through rain. 
The separation between the ocean level and the sky level was God's work on the second day. In verse 9, we once again see God creating order by separating the water from the dry land. In the first nine verses of our text, God creates order in our world by creating time, weather, and dry land. He, he creates order by separating day from night. He creates order by separating the ground level from the sky level. He creates order by separating the ocean from the dry land. In our text, God orders the world by his power. Now go with me here a minute. As a kid, I often kept my room pretty messy. Yeah, the, the, that's a picture. Um, I would often have clothes thrown everywhere. I would have toys scattered everywhere in my room, and my parents would get mad at me for not cleaning my room. But when I cleaned my room, I would clean it well. I would pick everything off the floor and even vacuum. And on rare occasions, I would even try to clean my room before my parents got home from work to diffuse their frustration with me. <laughs> and on those occasions where I cleaned my room, my mom would always notice right away. Even though she didn't see me clean my room, she would walk into my room and instantly knew I cleaned it. My mom knew that clothes didn't just fold themselves. My mom knew that beds didn't just make themselves. My mom knew that rooms did not clean and order themselves. When she saw my room clean, she knew it was the work of my hands. In a higher and holier way, the order in creation points us to the work of God's hands. Like rooms, planets do not order themselves. The ordered time in our world with days, seasons, and years points to a God who ordered time. The fine-tuning of our atmosphere, which produces life, points to a God of order. And the contours of the ocean and land point to a God of order. In the book Making Sense of God by Tim Keller, the author writes, The speed of light, the gravitational constant, the strength of the strong and weak nuclear forces must all have exactly the values that they do have in order for organic life to exist. The fine-tuning of physics makes much more sense in a universe in which there is a creator and a designer. It is improbable that all the physical constants just happen to be perfectly tuned for life on their own. This quote highlights the reality that our ordered world points to a God of order. It is highly improbable that our world ordered itself. And in Genesis 1, we see a God who brings order out of chaos. Our glorious world points to an even more glorious God because it is ordered. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, Henry, I get it. Our ordered world points to a God of order the God we find in Genesis 1. But how does that connect to my life on Monday through Saturday? Well, if our great God has the power to order the universe by his spoken word, then he has the power to bring order to the chaos in our life. He can bring order to our families. He can bring order at our job. He can bring order to our desires to empower us to turn away from the sin in our life. God began the universe by bringing order out of chaos, and he still does that in our lives today. Amen? Amen. And I'll be honest. Sometimes I struggle with believing that God can move in the midst of difficult circumstances in my life and bring order. 
But if God has the power to order the cosmos, he has the power to move in the difficult circumstances in our lives. So we should go to him in prayer. We should pray to him about the issues at our job. We should pray to him about the difficulties in our family. And we should pray to him about our family and family, friends and family members who do not believe the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, we have access to the God who ordered the cosmos through his spoken word. He hears our prayers and he has more than enough power to move in our lives. Amen? I'm just checking to see if y'all... <laughs> Now, in our text this morning, we do not only see that our ordered world points to a God of order. We see that our glorious world points to an even more glorious God because it is good. Let's look back at our text. I'm going to be skipping over some verses during this reading, so you can follow along on the screen beginning in verse 10 of Genesis 1. It reads, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 17. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And he saw that it was good. Verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, the which the waters swarm according to its kind, and every ringed bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Throughout Genesis chapter 1, God continually is affirming the goodness of his creation. On day one, after God creates time for day and night, he affirms the goodness of his creation. On day three, after God separates the land from the water, he calls his creation good. On day four, God creates the sun and moon. He also creates the stars, which are billions of galaxies. After he finishes this work, he calls it good. Then on day five, he creates all types of animals, sea creatures, and birds. And God once again affirms the goodness of his creation. In verse 31, we see that God created human beings on day six. And at the end of day six, God looks over all of his creation and pronounces it very good. When we read the Bible and see repetition, we know that the author is trying to emphasize a point. It is clear in Genesis 1 that God was emphasizing the goodness of his creation to his people. He was showing his people that he created out of delight and joy. This was very different from the creation narrative of other ancient Near Eastern religions during that time. Other cultures believed that the gods created out of war and chaos, but in this text we see that God delighted in his creation. In Genesis 1, we see that God affirmed the goodness of his creation. God shows us that his creation is a delight in Genesis 1. And I know this is true from experience. Now go with me here for a second. Prior to moving to the Chicago area for seminary, I spent three years living in Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis is a place dear to my heart because it is the place where God called me to pastoral ministry. 
Memphis is well known for a few things. Memphis is well known for its music scene. The King of Rock, Elvis Presley, lived in Memphis and his mansion served as a popular tourist destination. Memphis is also known for its barbecue. Now I know many of you Kansas Cityans may disagree with me, but I believe that Memphis has the best barbecue in the world. And I told this to my people at Brookside because you have to tell the truth to the people you love. <laughs> I let them know that I experienced God's goodness through the amazing barbecue in Memphis. <laughs> and to be fair, over the past nine months, I've also experienced God's goodness through the great barbecue in Kansas City. Okay, y'all with me now. I didn't even have to prompt that one, y'all. <laughs> Now let me ask you a question. How do you experience God's goodness through creation throughout your week on Monday through Saturday? It is so important for us to think about how we experience God's goodness through creation because we experience the goodness of God's creation every day. We experience God's goodness through the gravity that keeps us grounded. We experience God's goodness through the oxygen that puts breath in our lungs. We experience God's goodness through the vitamin D we absorb in our skin through sunlight. We experience God's goodness through the planet and, and animals that give us food. We experience God's goodness through having dry land to build homes upon. We experience God's goodness through natural resources like oil. We experience God's goodness through loving family and friends. And we experience God's goodness and everything. Amen? Now, some of you may be thinking, Henry, if God's creation is so good, then why do we have bad things in our world? If God created our world good, why do we have murder, violence, and even disasters? In Genesis 1, we see God originally created the world totally good, but we now live in a fallen world, and we're going to see later in Genesis that sin and death enters the world through the disobedience of our foreparents, Adam and Eve. But despite the fallen state of our world, there is still goodness. Our world is broken, but it still has beauty. In his book, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller again writes, Christianity explains the beauty paradox as our recognition that the world around us is good, but it has been tainted. The ugliness isn't inherent, and in fact, it doesn't belong to its original design. Rather, the glory we see in the world reflects the beauty of its creator as the moon reflects the light of the sun. In this quote, Keller shows that the brokenness in our world was not part of God's original design. He also points out that the beauty in our world points to the beauty of the God who created our world. And this is what we see in Genesis 1. The beauty and goodness of creation points to an infinitely beautiful and good God. This truth should lead us to regularly thank God for the beauty and goodness we experience through his creation. We should thank God for the goodness we experience through food. We should thank God for the goodness we experience through our jobs. We should thank God for the goodness we experience through our family and friends. We should thank God for the beauty we experience through art and nature. We should thank God for all the goodness and beauty that we experience in our world because it all ultimately comes from him. Amen. Y'all getting it. 
Now, in Genesis 1, we don't only see that our world points to God because it's ordered and good. We see that our glorious world points to an even more glorious God because it has purpose. The world that we live in is woven together in an intricate pattern of purpose. And this points to a purposeful creator. Let's look back at verse 22 of our text. It reads, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And continuing in verse 26, our text reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now in this passage, we see that God created his creation with purpose. After God created animals and sea creatures on the fifth day, He commanded them in verse 22 to be fruitful and multiply. He commanded all the animals to stay alive by reproducing themselves. In verse 26, we see that God gives purpose to humankind when he creates them on day six. Under his authority, God gives humankind dominion over the earth. He gives humankind authority over the creatures in the sea and the animals on dry land. God gives the humans the purpose of exercising authority over all his creation on earth. In verse 28, he also gives humans the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying upon the earth. In Genesis 1, we see that God gives purpose to his creation. And we human beings long for purpose. Studies have shown that a loss of purpose in a person's life is correlated with a deterioration in health. We need a purpose. And if we lose God, we lose our purpose. If we lose God, we lose our purpose. And I realized this truth in college at Indiana University. During my time in college, I had a crisis of faith. I started to doubt the God of Genesis 1. I was in an environment where many people questioned God's existence. I was in an environment where people made me feel like it was irrational to believe in God. I was in an environment where it was hard for me to hold on to my faith. At times, I thought about coming, becoming agnostic. But by God's grace, I did not move beyond faith in God. And one of the reasons I held on to faith was because I realized that without God, we have no purpose. Now, in his book, Making Sense of God, Keller again writes, if this life is all there is, and there is no God or life beyond the material world, then it will not ultimately matter whether you are a genocidal maniac or an altruist. It won't matter whether you fight for hunger or are incredibly cruel and greedy and starving the poor. In the end, what you do will make no difference whatsoever. This quote highlights the reality that if we lose God, we lose our purpose. Without God, our lives are ultimately meaningless, and this is what I realized in college. I also came to realize that humankind had lost its purpose. God created us to glorify him and exercise authority over the earth under his guidance. 
but we rebelled against our creator. This rebellion brought sin and death into our world, and this is why we have violence, abuse, murder, and division in our world today. Humanity has lost its purpose, and God saw that we lost our purpose. He saw the chaos, disorder, and meaninglessness in our world through sin. So he took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the God who made time, weather, land, and animals, and humans became a human. Jesus took on flesh to bring back order to what we disordered. He took on flesh to bring back complete goodness to what we corrupted by sin. And he took on flesh to give us back our purpose by dying on the cross of Calvary and resurrecting from the grave. In our text this morning, we see that our glorious world points to an even more glorious God. And in the gospel, we see that our glorious world points to an even more glorious Lord and Savior. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for creating our world, Lord. We thank you for the grace that you show us, Lord. We thank you for your mercy, Father. We thank you for your creation, Lord. I pray that we, when we see your creation, we would think of you, Lord, and that we would allow our surroundings to point us back to you, Lord. And I pray that you would just continue to grow us and draw us closer to you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.